0: Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, this is Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show.
1: That's right, it's a look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, dogs and accents. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor P. Michael Kahn, who will discuss the animal research war. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and the world famous question of the week, coming right up, here, on the Grok's Science Show.
0: I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I guess that means me, Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank?
0: Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> Enjoying some good sushi out there? Mmm, yeah, very fresh. Just <laughs> right out of the waters. <laughs> so it actually turns out something interesting, a sign about sushi is that you actually don't want to eat it immediately after killing the fish.
1: Is that right?
0: Yeah, it turns out if you let it cure, or you know, even if it's under a cold condition, after the meat's been sliced for a few hours, the enzymes actually help to release some of the flavor when you eat it.
1: Basically breaking down something in the fish itself that
0: yeah the umami yes taste so it turns out uh, the best sushi is fish that's been dead for a few hours
1: any longer than that and i can tell you'd be pretty bad sushi <laughs> <laughs> perhaps even deadly sushi
0: <laughs> <laughs> here's a, a real story so um have you picked up any new accents in chicago Stores don't sell them around here. You don't have the mobster accent then. I think I'd probably have to see the mayor for that. Uh, you can't fight
1: City Hall. Definitely not in Chicago anyway.
0: So this has been a very interesting case uh, coming out of Canada. A lady who had a stroke and when she recovered turned out she now has a Newfoundland accent. Is that right? It's very subtle, but T's would suddenly become TH's, and TH sounds would become more like a D sound, so that would become that. Mm. These subtleties indicate that somehow your brain circuitry has been altered, and this was documented in a recent article in the Canadian Journal of Neurology. Karen Humphreys at McMaster University had a test case with one patient, a Rosemary door and when the patient had a stroke and then after going physical therapy she developed this accent there's only been 50 or 60 cases of this syndrome they actually call it the the foreign accent syndrome <laughs>
1: Well, basically it must be affecting the speech areas of the brain, uh, which affect how you enunciate and pronounce certain syllables.
0: Right, and so Dr. Humphreys believes that if you had better brain scans and other tests, you could probably find out what regions in the brain controls the actual response to words so that the precise muscles needed to pronounce certain words will come out correctly and with damage of course you're going to see some alteration in that
1: circuitry right but she's of course trying to speak correctly it's just her uh, vocalizations are um, coming out with an accent right yeah. right so that's good if you want the accent <laughs> 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 although I'd, I'd pick something sexier like French <laughs> or Sean Connery ah, Sean Connery is
0: definitely the sexiest <laughs> <laughs> this was in the Canadian Journal of Neurobiology I wonder if dogs have strokes. I thought all animals can potentially have
1: strokes, right? Probably. You just don't see them around. Although,
0: probably the effects are mostly deadly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) You rarely see the ones that survive because it's kind of old yeller time at that point. (laughs) In any case, researchers have been interested in how dogs have their multiple traits, you know, big, small, their hair size, this kind of thing. Right. And it's been several years of breeding of dogs that all these genes have led to the various breeds that they have. Okay. And so now researchers are actually trying to pin down which genes are responsible for the makeup of certain breeds and types. Mm-hmm. This is actually quite interesting because research not too long ago found a region of the DNA which was responsible for behaviors such as herding and collies. Okay. But now new research uh, in genetics have found a number of other genes, what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms in these genes, mm-hmm. that lead to certain characteristics like their size or their hair color.
0: So are these genes, do they give rise to a number of traits or are these genes very specific to just one or two traits?
1: Oh, well, for the most part, the genes that they found tend to be very specific to certain types of traits, like mm-hmm. either the size of the dog or it's hair color or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's thought that as they keep looking at this, they can build a complete genetic profile for each dog and perhaps then lead to new varieties and breeds.
0: Oh, you mean like you can
1: design your own dogs? (laughs) Just point and click and be delivered by Amazon 10 weeks later.
0: (laughs) It's like, you know, ordering a new car.
1: (laughs) Yeah, except cars less faithful than the man's best friend, right? Well, they don't poop. (laughs) Just toxic emissions, right? (laughs) It's the old kind. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so this was very fascinating work, and it's certainly interesting to all the uh, dog lovers out there. Uh, It was reported in a recent edition of Genetics.
0: So, actually, one side note here in Japan, there's been some craze with certain types of dogs, and there's been a trade of inbreeding. Oh. Okay. In fact, it's become a problem because some of these ultra cute dogs don't live very long, mostly because of the inbreeding process that makes certain bad genes
1: express themselves in much greater frequency. Right. Well, you get selection for autosomal recessive type diseases and all kinds of other things. <laughs> right. Uh, but if they're cute, you know, just like buy a six pack and
0: <laughs> be ready to go. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology. In a few moments, P. Michael Kahn will join us to talk about the animal research war.
1: to the Grok Science Show. Well, medical science in the past century has been greatly advanced by animal research. However, the use of animals in medical research is not without controversy. Indeed, medical researchers continually are under attack from animal rights activists. Well, joins us today to discuss this issue is Professor P. Michael Kahn. Professor Kahn is Professor of Physiology and Pharmacology and Cell Biology and Development at the Oregon Health and Sciences University. He's also the Associate Director of the Oregon National Primate Research Center. Author of numerous scientific publications, he has also penned the new book, The Animal Research War, which explores this issue for a general audience. Professor Kahn, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: Thank you very much, Charles. Call me Michael, and let me mention that I co-authored that with Jim Parker.
1: Well, so this is it actually is a very fascinating book that you've written with uh, Mr. Parker there. I'm, I'm curious about it. has somewhat of an incentive title, try to the animal research war. In what sense is this a war?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. There is a very real and very violent war going on right now against animal research. It's almost invisible in the media. Jim Parker and I wrote the book, The Animal Research War, in order to try to place this issue on the public agenda. We tell, for example, the stories of two researchers, very good researchers, who walked away from productive careers because they feared for their family's being We want people to know that these extremist groups are having a strangling effect on drug development things that we need so desperately. The book talks about the changing way the public perceives animals, the motivation behind animal extremism, and the plight faced by scientists, the value that comes from animal research. The book is all about the battles, spies, and casualties of the animal research war.
1: Mm. I'm curious, what is the motivation for a lot of these animal activists?
2: You know, that's an interesting question. Right now I'm in Washington, D.C., attending an interesting conference that's being attended not only by scientists and media people, but individuals who are very pro-research, as well as, for the first time, large numbers of police authorities. And I've asked some of them that very same question. The problem is, if you try to understand it, we often get positioned as the bad guy. The truth is that on one end of the extreme, you have people that would torture animals. On the other end of the extreme, you have people that want to give animals rights. We are in the middle. We are the welfareists. We want the best things for animals. We want the advantages that come from animal research to be used in people and animals. And we will stand for nothing short... Of outstanding animal care. It's true for example that at our facility the uh, primates are very well cared for and in many situations better cared for than the average poverty line child in the United States.
1: Uh, and yet the attack that's made by a lot of these animal research activists is that these animals are mistreated and, and tortured in a lot of ways.
2: That's a common claim but right now we're in a situation where UCLA is suing extremists to stop a campaign of terror vandalism and threats directed at faculty and administrators. UCLA van was firebombed sitting in Irvine, California, uh, less than a month ago. The University of Utah is supporting legislation to protect their scientists so their children aren't menaced, their pictures aren't put on the web, they don't receive razor blades in the mail. At the University of California in Santa Cruz, there was a home invasion less than a month ago. We have colleagues in Portland whose cars have been spray painted and covered with paint stripper whose homes are painted with animal rights graffitis, firebombs are going off in L.A. The Society for Neuroscience has felt it necessary to issue a best practices document. This is unusual because they're actually giving universities instructions on how to protect their researchers from extremists. This is a civilized country in the year 2008. What is going on?
1: Indeed, what is going on? I mean, this, is, this seem a little bit hypocritical even from their end.
2: Well, it's particularly hypocritical. We're well aware of animal extremists who take advantage of all of the things that have come out of biomedical research. There was a woman, for example, who until recently was a long-standing vice president of PETA. The woman is a diabetic and takes insulin. When she was called on that hypocrisy, what she said was, I need my life to protect the animals. Well, my sense, and I'm not the first one to make this observation, is if you went to the dictionary and looked up the word hypocrite, you might find her picture there.
1: (laughs) Animal rights activists will argue that uh, animal research didn't even have much play in terms of developing things like insulin or penicillin or thalidomide.
2: Well, one of the things that we talk about in the book is many of the advantages that have come from animal research. And I won't go into them now, but it's things like, how many people do you know these days in iron lungs? How many people do you know who are suffering from bubonic plague. Those diseases are all but eradicated. The advantages that have come from animal research are many. Today, individuals, for reasons of nutrition, some of which has come from animal research, for reasons of improved medical care, improved surgical procedures, better medicines. People today live much longer and healthier lives than did their parents or grandparents.
1: So what is the history of this animal rights movement?
2: Well, it started actually in the United Kingdom some time ago. You can find origins of anti sectionist societies going back to Victorian England. In the recent past, and by recent past I'm talking about less than 20 years, it's come to the United States and it wears many different hats. Your listeners who, who read the newspaper frequently will see there have been a huge number of convictions in the last year of people who have used illegal means in order to try to stop scientists from doing ethical and humane research people may not understand how regulated animal research is at our facility and indeed most facilities the usda shows up randomly to look at the facilities they do a white glove inspection and they let us know in no uncertain terms if there are problems we we have not had problems some facilities do and the usda can actually put them out of business in the united states The Animal Welfare Act governs the use of animals in research. In the United Kingdom, the Animal Scientific Procedures Act governs their use of animals. Most of the world has a standard for animal research, and one of the issues right now is trying to harmonize those standards, trying to get them together so that scientific studies that are done in one part of the world can be compared to studies that are done elsewhere.
1: I'm curious, what are some of the major players in this movement today?
2: animal extremist movement? Indeed, yeah. Well, there's one interesting individual, a fellow named Jerry Vlasic, who is the press officer for the North American Animal Liberation Press Office. And I'd just like to read you a quote from him to give you a sense of where he's coming from. He said, I don't think you'd have to kill, assassinate too many doctors involved with animal testing. I think that for five lives, ten lives, 15 human lives, we could save a million, two million." or 10 million non-human lives. He said that in 2003. More recently, he was on a uh, television show, and the host of that show said, you have been quoted as saying, I think five lives, 10 lives, 15 human lives would save 1 million, 2 million, 10 million non-human lives. And you've also said that violence is a morally acceptable topic and that it might be useful in the struggle for animal liberation. Do you stand by this? Well, this was his opportunity to say, You know, I'd had too much to drink that day. But his response was, I do stand by all that.
1: Uh, So is this movement uh, becoming a little more extreme at the late?
2: It's fair to say that it's becoming more extreme than it was in the United States. We've had instances of individuals who've had their homes flooded intentionally by animal extremists, private property painted. We've had individuals drop out of science because their children were being menaced. We've had individuals have firebombs. Place at their door and under their cars. It's a very, very difficult time. I mean, it's okay for you to disagree with me, and you might. I don't know. It's okay for you to publicly discuss your view, to lobby your congressman. You can try to change the law. What's not okay is to put a bomb at my house or menace my family. We live in a civilization, Charles. People living in a civilized society can agree. That firebombing homes and threatening families is not part of the acceptable process of bringing about change in a democracy fear and intimidation can't be allowed to play a part in changing the hearts and minds of people
1: indeed indeed i I understand that you yourself have been the target of some of these extremists
2: that's exactly correct Uh, and that was actually the inspiration for writing the book about eight years ago i was on a trip to tampa florida And it was unbelievable. I had extremists taking advantage of the Florida open meetings law and bursting into meetings, screaming at me, accusing me of all kinds of things. I had people coming to my hotel room at night, calling me at all hours of the night. It got so bad that I needed to be protected by an armed police deputy. It was absolutely remarkable. Some of your readers may have access to the magazine The Scientist. A couple of months ago, they published 2,500 words out of the book talking about that incident.
1: Has this continued, or have they uh, backed off?
2: Well, I had the strange distinction of being the first person who was menaced, and I had the strange distinction of being the first person to have them come to my home. I still have colleagues as recently as a few months ago who've had their cars painted, their garage doors painted with Animal Liberation Front insignias and slogans. We've had what is euphemistically called home visits, more appropriately called home harassment, where they stand across from your home with bullhorns and scream at you for an hour or so. You call the police and then the police come and they take off and very little happens. We've had colleagues have posters put up in their neighborhood that they're in some way monsters based on completely erroneous information. We've had colleagues have their children menaced to the point where they seriously think about moving.
1: How aware do you think most people are of this issue?
2: I I think most people are not very aware of the issue. One of the things that we found out in doing research for the book is that if you ask most people in the United States if they support animal research, about 50% will say yes and about 50% will say no. I was surprised by that. I was even more surprised by the fact that if you tell them first that animal research is regulated heavily by the government, the number goes up to 90% that support it. People don't realize even how heavily regulated animal research is in the United States or in the United Kingdom or most of the world. So it's a big problem. Uh, The onus should be on us to talk more to the public. Uh, Unfortunately, us scientists can be a bit geeky. We're sometimes afraid, we're not well media trained. And you know how it is, when people are in the minority or think they're in the minority, they tend to clam up.
1: Mm. So is, is there much effort being done then to bring this issue to the fore?
2: Well, professional societies have been loath to do this with a few notable exceptions. The Society for Neuroscience and the American Physiology Society have been two that have spoken up. Many societies are afraid that if they do it, they'll become a lightning rod. Other organizations, like the National Association for Biomedical Research, Americans for Medical Progress, have been speaking up for some time. But these are organizations, Charles, that have very tiny budgets compared to PETA or the Humane Society of the United States. That latter group is an interesting one because a lot of people confuse them with local humane societies that take care of animals. In point of fact, the Humane Society of the United States is basically a lobbying group.
1: So how aware do you think most scientists are, actually, of this issue?
2: I think it, de- it depends. You know, if they're in an institution that's been hit, and I can tell you UCLA is critically aware of it. I have colleagues there, and they are very much aware of it, and, and they're terrified of it. If you had colleagues walking away from their productive research careers as a result of being threatened, you would be well aware of it. The problem is you, you leave the state of California, and very few people know about the issue.
1: Hmm. So what do you think are some recommendations then for getting this issue maybe more to the front?
2: Well, I think we've got to speak up. I mean, we've got to speak up. If we do not, it's at our own peril. That was one of the reasons that Jim Parker and I wrote The Animal Research War. We want to tell this story. We want to get it on the public agenda. We want there to be discussion of it. We're okay talking to people who are reasonable opponents of our view. What we're not okay with is getting razor blades in the mail and threats. We open our facility. And tour through about 3,000 people a year. Those can be school kids, those can be members of church groups, community groups, people who want to see it. We're basically an open facility. Uh, we allow people to come in and see what we do. We have summer programs. I think this summer we have just shy of 100 students that are going to be there we have programs for biology teachers to come in and work in our facilities i think that kind of outreach is extremely important because the public has a right to know and they need to know the problem with the way things have been done charles is that you know how the human mind works typically you collect enough information to make a position for yourself and then you stop collecting information the problem is the facts that have been put in front of people by animal extremist groups generally untrue and generally relying on images that come from 20 years ago or more and no one knows really what institution they came from but these horrific pictures of monkeys in elaborate head outfits are presented as being present day and nothing could be further from the truth. We've got to get people to understand this.
1: Hmm. So, do you think, in, in a sense, it's almost a failure on the part of scientists for actually getting the the real message out there?
2: Well, I think we uh, we own part of that blame. There's no question about it.
1: Maybe it's a wake up call for scientists to do something better, right?
2: I think it is. But you know how it is. I mean, it, it's very much like in the in the 20s when you had store owners paying protection money to the mob and they never spoke out. I mean, look what happened in Nazi Germany before people they came forward. I mean, even among some scientists, there's not a clear picture of the pervasive nature of the problem. Hmm.
1: What do you think are maybe some final messages that really the public needs to know about animal research?
2: Well, I think the public needs to understand that animal research is heavily regulated, that it's extremely humane, and that great things come out of it. I would not want to be the person to tell the parents of a critically ill child that the life of their child and the ability of that child to have a happy and productive life is in some way worth less than the life of a lab rat. I think scientists have to speak out. They've got to come forward. They've got to tell their stories. And I think what I would like to see happen is a few to come forward and then a large number to come forward. One of the lessons that we've learned from the United Kingdom is that when the public comes forward, and there was a massive movement there that was actually led by a young person called Protest, P-R-O hyphen T-E-S-T, in favor of animal research, um, that that event led to generalized public support, law changes, and much more in the way of harassment. I would tell you that protest was really founded when there was an effort by animal extremists to shut down the construction of facilities at Oxford and at Cambridge. And one of those facilities opened just a couple of weeks ago. Mm
1: -hmm. Actually, I'm curious, how does the animal rights movement uh, compare across the world?
2: Well, it's different in every country, but it's growing. In fact, one of the things that we've learned at this meeting is that there is a new effort to recruit animal extremists in Asia. Uh, It started in the U.K., as I mentioned, came to the United States. I've published a number of articles in scientific journals and a recent one in the Skeptical Inquirer for the general public about this issue. And what's interesting is that I'm getting back a lot of mail from South America I'm getting even some mail from Africa, a great deal of mail from Japan and China. People talking about the fact that this is a breaking issue in their countries as as well.
1: Well, it certainly is a very fascinating issue. I think it's certainly important, I think, for the public to know uh, the benefits that animal research has. And Professor Kahn, I do want to thank you very much uh, for joining us today to talk about it. Uh, The new book, of course, is The Animal Research War, which I hope a lot of people go out and take a look at. Professor Kahn, thank you very much for joining us
2: today. Thank you very much, Charles. And you
1: were just listening to Professor P. Michael Kahn discussing the animal research war. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
2: Good. Good. God, what
0: is it good for? Absolutely Listen to me.
2: Just, it's been fighting wars each day. War can't give life.
1: And we're back. And here to answer this week's question of the week is our good friend, Forrest. Forrest Gump. How are you doing, Forrest? Pretty good, Charles. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, except I got this problem of inhibition. And I don't know how to solve
0: it. Just drink a little more and you don't have (laughs) inhibition. But you're probably wondering what an allosteric inhibitor is, right? It, It keeps me up all night. Well, it's a funny thing that happens when a substrate finds the wrong part. Of a protein, making it a little bit funny. Works in different ways. That's what happened in my brain when I was growing up.
1: Well, we love you just the same, Forrest. Thanks for joining us today again.
0: My name is Forrest. They call me Forrest. Go. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grox Science Show.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Grox, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grox Science Show, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.